Welcome to Dr. Ruscio Radio, providing practical and science-based solutions to feeling your best. To stay up to date on the latest topics, as well as all of our prior episodes, make sure to subscribe in your podcast player. For weekly updates, visit drruscio.com. That's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now, let's head to the show. Hi, everyone. Today, I spoke with Dr. Dale Bredesen, part two, on his multi-component, about 36-component model for prevention of cognitive decline, Alzheimer's dementia, uh, and the like. The main reason behind having him back on was because his 36-component model is fantastic, and I think it is bringing very important acknowledgement of treatable underlying factors that lead to the travesty of cognitive decline. Great. But 36 components is a tremendous amount for clinicians to grapple with or for a person on their own, maybe reading a book or what have you, to execute. Having a, as I've harped on uh, the podcast many a time before, and also I discussed in Healthy Good Healthy You, having a hierarchy and kind of an algorithm to prioritize can really help reduce the confusion, increase the time to healing, reduce the lab burden, and just generally lead to better outcomes. And that was what I really wanted to dig into in this episode. And Dale did an excellent job. He actually has now broken down the model into subtypes. And I find this incredibly helpful because now instead of looking at 36 factors and trying to parse through them and and really uh, likely struggling, now we have subtypes. One is inflammatory. Guess what comes up with inflammation? Oftentimes gut health. Uh, The other is vascular for those who are not doing anything that allows good blood flow to brain like exercise. Vascular may be an issue. Glycotoxic for those who have high blood sugar as another category. So we'll go into the system or the subtypes in more detail in the podcast, but just wanted to kind of give you this this, uh, kind of summary on what we will be discussing today. One or two other things I want to uh, point you to, the, the type one in this subtype model is inflammatory, and this encompasses gut, sinus, and periodontal or kind of oral health. Now, a great resource there for you is Healthy Gut Healthy You, as, as I mentioned quite frequently, but also I want to remind people of the meta-analysis that is found that probiotics can help reduce periodontitis. So there are some simple ways to reduce inflammation as perhaps one of the main underlying factors of cognitive decline. It's not the only factor, but it's definitely an important and treatable factor that can be remedied. So if you're looking to help take a dent out of the inflammatory status of your own body, consider the action plan and Healthy Good Healthy You and or a good, well-rounded probiotic protocol, which can really help reduce the gut-associated inflammation. So now we'll go to the call with Dale. His model, I'll just give you the overview really quick, type 1 inflammatory, type 2 atrophic, type 1.5 glycotoxic, type 3 toxic, type 4 vascular, and type 5 traumatic, as in head trauma. Um, So if you're looking to optimize your brain health, 
definitely, in my experience, as you probably know, having had brain fog while my gut was in disarray, your gut health is a very important facet. But Dale has now helped bring other facets into kind of a, a rubric of these subtypes with the ability to identify where you may flag and some action items on what you can do. So we will now go to the call with Dale Bredesen. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Ruscio Radio. This is Dr. Ruscio, and I have back with us again, Dr. Dale Bredesen, and we're going to be going into his, his model or kind of following up on his model for, I guess you could say broadly underneath the rubric of brain health, but digging more into there's this great 36-point model. How do we try to prioritize various aspects of that model for the individual very much in keeping with the theme we've discussed on this podcast, which is there's a lot we can do for someone, but having a hierarchy can be very, very helpful in prioritizing and focusing on the things that need to be addressed that can make care um, less expensive and certainly get you to the goals oftentimes that you're trying to reach more quickly. So really appreciative, Dale, of, uh, for you coming back on the show and having a chance to try to, um, I guess, get to the highest level of efficiency and application of your model that we can. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be back. In case people missed the first episode, can you give people just a real short synopsis of your background? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm a, a neurologist and a neuroscientist, uh, and uh, trained, had ran a lab for 30 years, uh, and the whole point of our laboratory was to understand the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process at a at a molecular species level, so that we could understand well enough things like Alzheimer's and Lewy body disease and ALS to begin to fashion the first effective treatments, because this, as you know, is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. So back in 2014, published the first paper to show reversal of cognitive decline in patients with Alzheimer's and pre-Alzheimer's. We actually published another 100 documented improvements in 2018, and then just published the uh, second book on, on this a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. So fantastic area of study, and I agree with you that neurological-based conditions, and I would also argue actually gastrointestinal-based conditions are, are two areas where conventional medicine may fall relatively shorter. And certainly that, that's a, a very broad statement, and, and that's not going to be universally true. There are facets, I think, in conventional medicine that do a great job for, for certain neurological and uh, gastrointestinal disorders. But uh, on the whole, knowing that so many of these are, are chronic and degenerative in nature, it just seems that the, the conventional model isn't aptly suited for what is the driving factor or factors for many people. And I know we, we line up on that. Absolutely. So we had discussed last time you were on the 36 point model. And before we started the recording today, you said something that I think is, is just so important. I wanted to reiterate it, which is uh, this is you know a newer and emerging field. And as a field is developing, we become more and more efficient, kind of like the, the Rob Wolf analogy of a cell phone today can do way more in a smaller uh, device than it could due to efficiency gains. And, and so a natural part of the evolution of, of any facet of healthcare, hopefully, is becoming more discerning, more efficient. And uh, that's why I'm so excited to discuss the model because 36 components, that's a tall order right. for a clinician to work with and also for patients. But that, that being said, as a quick aside, 
uh, one of the really endemic problems I see in integrative and functional medicine, it's kind of like the, the paradox of plenty. We have plenty of options, but the paradox there is, is some providers feel they have to execute all of those options. And this is where we'll see the horror stories of $6,000 worth of lab testing, a twenty dollars to $30,000 care package that was recommended. Uh, and, and while I think those are probably predominantly done with benevolent intentions, you know, it's not the optimal due to the the cost and the invasiveness and, and the amount of pills someone has to pop. Um, so that's why I'm so appreciative of, you know, the, the conversation we're jumping into today, which is how do we make this more manageable? Is it a great point, you know, and it gets back to the point that if you're trying to develop a single drug and you've got all these different things that are that are all contributing to your cognitive decline. And typically we find that people have between 10 and 25 different contributors to cognitive decline. So we have to prioritize them. Then a, that is a very tall order for a single drug. And I think that's one of the main reasons why all of the drugs have failed. Even the ones that have quote succeeded have had an absolutely minimal impact and really don't change the trajectory downward in these uh, de- uh, cognitive declining related diseases such as Alzheimer's. So you're absolutely right. What we went straight, you know, we went from the bench, from bench research, we simply said, look, here is the pathway that is critical. And there are many things that play into this pathway. And so you're right, there were originally we identified 36, there are now actually a couple more. But what you need to do is look at the top priority items. And so what we did was to classify these, and we published several years ago, the subtyping of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's risk. So that you can see very clearly, some people have what we call type 1 or inflammatory Alzheimer's. So in those people, it's really critical to ratchet down that inflammation. And then, of course, to determine, most importantly, what's causing the inflammation. Is this a leaky gut? Is this periodontitis? Is this chronic sinusitis? Is this metabolic syndrome? What have you? And then type 2, which is atrophic, a very different cause of the disease. These are people that don't have a lot of inflammation, but what they do have is a reduced support, nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, estradiol, testosterone, vitamin D, progesterone, pregnenolone, thyroid, all these things that are critical for keeping your synapses going are in short supply. And so it's very different approach for those people. And then type 1.5 has some of both of those. That is glycotoxic. These are people that have both glycation of proteins and glyoxels giving you the inflammatory piece, but they also have insulin resistance giving you the atrophic piece. And we used to grow neurons in the, in the Petri dishes all the time in our research. You always had to include insulin in there because it's such an important trophic factor. So no surprise, when you get insulin resistance, you are going to have less support for your synapses. Then type three, which is toxic. And these toxins come in three groups. They are inorganic like mercury or air pollution-related things. And with the current California fires, this is a huge issue. And then secondly, organic toxins, glyphosate, formaldehyde, toluene, benzene, things like that. And then the third group, biotoxins, trichothecenes, gliotoxin, ocratoxin A, things like that. Then type four, which is vascular. This is turning out to be very common vascular support to the brain, getting the appropriate blood flow, oxygenation, ketosis, all of these critical things, uh, absolutely important and very commonly abnormal in Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's risk. And then the last one, type five, 
which is traumatic. So many people have head trauma as a contributing factor as well. So if you can break that down, and we do see, you know, there are doctors who most of their patients are getting better on this approach, and there are doctors who very few of their patients are getting better on this approach. And it really does boil down to exactly what you said, to prioritizing. And that's really the advance over the years as we begin to understand what are the most critical players for each person. Gosh, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm being a little bit candid, you know, some, uh, some of the uh, pioneers of different models, I found they, they seem to have the constitutional way of analyzing information in which they're always looking for the nuances and how to make things more complicated. And they're not looking for how do these nuances kind of connect back to a, a common unifying trunk. And it, it's something that, uh, again, if I'm being really candid here, uh, must've been the, the coffee I had this morning. It's making me a little bit uh, <laughs> overly open, but it, it's frustrating because when, when uh, you, you double down on that model, you really shortchange the ability for clinicians and for patients to have a ability to more effectively apply what might be some really novel breakthroughs in that model. But if, if you're not looking for these patterns like you're describing here, which I think are absolutely fantastic, you have more of a shotgun approach. Well, we don't know where to start, so let's test everything and then let's just start treating the tests. And yeah, it's nice in theory, but oftentimes the, the testing results are not fully literally able to be translated clinically. And so what ends up happening is you're, you're interpreting lab results, missing the juxtaposition to the, the patient context. And therefore you end up in some cases mistreating the labs, mistreating the individual, which is why I absolutely love this model. So I guess, well, let me, let me put a period there before I jump into some questions on the model itself. Anything that you'd want to add to that? Absolutely. So, so we call this not a silver bullet approach, which is what you're trying to do with the drug, but a silver buckshot approach because you are covering more than one thing, but you are targeting each one of those things. So you shouldn't have to cover too many things. And I do think that the drug approach is going to be very powerful when it's used on the backbone of the appropriate treatments. Mm-hmm. You may or may not have to use a drug with a person, but as you, as you start to hit these other things and you target them with a precision medicine type of approach, a silver buckshot approach, then I think we're going to kind of meet somewhere in the middle here where there will be some sort of relatively, you know, relatively targeted, not too large contribution for each person that we can do to make a big impact. Sure, sure. And, and the, the first component of your model, uh, the inflammatory, or I guess the, the first component of your subtypes, the inflammatory type, certainly... I think our audience really appreciates the impact of gut health on inflammation. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked about how we can consider the oral cavity as the first section of the gut. And so this is where periodontal health can be very important. And also how in some cases there can be dysbiosis in some instances that are a byproduct of mold exposure, but where someone can have dysbiosis in the sinuses. So kind of this, this, you know, main mucosal uh, tract as being a huge source of inflammation, certainly agree with that. And I'm wondering, are you finding that that is the most common? Is that why it's considered type one? 
So yeah, insulin resistance is probably the most common contributor to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and as Professor Ed Getzel from UCSF showed by looking at neural exosomes, and there are about 1.2 billion of these little 100 nanometer vesicles floating around in every cc of your blood. They, they reflect what is going on in the brain. They, they derive from, uh, from neurons and other cells in the brain. And as he showed, there is the signature of insulin resistance in virtually everybody with Alzheimer's disease. However, inflammation, as you indicated, which what we call type 1, uh, is a, also a very common contributor and one that's absolutely critical because the various cytokines that are produced during neuroinflammation are damaging to the brain. They are a part of Alzheimer's. And in fact, the amyloid beta itself is part of the innate immune system. So just as we've heard from COVID-19 that cytokine storm is such an issue and that COVID-19 has essentially compressed all the uh, all the risk factors of Alzheimer's down into two weeks. So the, uh, with people who have inflammatory Alzheimer's, these cytokines do damage. And in fact, the, the amyloid beta is one of these. It is, it's, although not a cytokine itself, it is part of the innate immune system's response. And it does produce a downsizing response in the brain, which is what Alzheimer's actually is, a downsizing response in response to specific insults, such as, as you indicated, chronic sinusitis, changes in oral microbiome, changes in gut microbiome, leaky gut. These are all critical. And by the way, when the pathologists look in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease, what they find is they find various organisms, including P. gingivalis from periodontitis, T. denticola, F. nucleatum, all from oral microbiome. They find candida, for example. They find various mold species uh, from the sinus. So absolutely, there is much more communication, not, not only between gut and brain, but between the rhinocinal microbiome uh, and brain an oral microbiome than brain than we ever thought before. And this is absolutely critical to address. Sure, sure. And I think they're obviously fantastic points. Just as one reminder for our audience, uh, there was, I believe, a meta-analysis published that found that oral probiotic administration can lead to a clinically meaningful improvement in periodontal disease or, or periodontitis. So not to say it's all about probiotics or the gut, but certainly whenever we can find a simple measure or therapeutic like probiotics that may also help with oral dysbiosis, that can be helpful. I offer that because it's sometimes not the most straightforward getting opinion from a dentist. Some dentists are more forward thinking than others. And so some feel in any given individual, if they get three different dental opinions, one person may say everything's fine. The other person may uh, want them to do a 12-month uh, mercury detox protocol for the one filling they had 18 years ago. And, you know, you kind of have these extremes. And so wherever we can help you have a, a uh, intervention that could help with your oral cavity health, that doesn't require a lot of testing and specific treatment. That's a win. Of course, take this case by case. And if there is some kind of festering infection, make sure you see that through. But uh, just a bit there that may be salient to those wondering if their oral health is where it should be. 
Absolutely. This is a really important point. And as you know, there's a whole group now of oral systemic specialists. So these are people who are dentists by training, but are now looking at the relationship between the oral microbiome and systemic illness. And as you know, it's found to play a role in atherosclerotic plaque, in colorectal cancer, uh, in cognitive decline. They're finding these same uh, organisms in the brain. So I think this is a, a really important and emerging field. Yeah, fully, fully agreed. And, and one thing to also uh, point our audience to, Mark Brehenna wrote an excellent book called The Eight-Hour Sleep Paradox. And he's made some very interesting connections that dysbiosis in the mouth and other similar findings in the mouth, uh, uh, dry tongue, uh, I'm sorry, dry mouth, burning tongue, receding gums, some of those may be due to nocturnal or nighttime mouth breathing that may be an indicator of underlying sleep disordered breathing. So just keep your eyes and ears open to the fact that if there is a chronic issue or issues in the mouth, part of that may be due to mouth breathing, especially at night, which is kind of a double negative because not only does it throw off your oral health, but obviously it impedes your sleep quality. And if you haven't read Mark's book, it's 100, 120 pages, very simple read, but really loaded with action items. So that's something else for people to kind of keep in mind. Cause yeah, you're, you're making a great point, Dale, that the, uh, the mouth it has kind of not been given it's, it's just attention. And I think it's finally starting to uh, get the recognition that it, the, uh, it deserves. Absolutely. Hey everyone. Let's talk about one of my favorite tests for digestive health, the GI map from diagnostic solutions who has helped to make this podcast possible. Now, if you've been reading any of the case studies that I've published in the future of functional medicine review clinical newsletter, you've likely seen that this test, the GI map is a test I frequently use in my practice. Why? Well, one of my favorite things about this test is it has excellent insurance coverage. So this is a few hundred dollars. I save patients. This lab is also CLIA certified, which is essentially the Quality Assurance Bureau for labs. So it's important that these labs are being monitored, not cutting any corners. That's where you get your CLIA certification. Now, this test uses quantitative PCR technology, so it's a DNA test. And you'll get a good read on dysbiosis with this test because they will assess and report out various types of bacteria, yeast, and parasites, including protozoa, worms, and amoebas. They also have some valuable and helpful clinical markers like calprotectin, which can help rule in or out inflammatory bowel disease, and zonulin, a marker of leaky gut. So head over to diagnosticsolutionslab.com, diagnosticsolutionslab.com to learn more and to order your test. So question regarding insulin resistance. Well, well, first a comment, then a question. So my thinking is depending on the patient population you work with, that will be more or less of an issue. Uh, for me right. in, in my clinic, you know, we have many forward thinking patients who are very well educated and they're paying attention to sleep, to exercise, to diet, all these kind of diet and lifestyle fundamentals. So it's much less common that we'll see insulin resistance in our population. Now, that's more the exception than it is the rule in the United States, um, but just something for clinicians to be aware of because my, my fear is in, in some clinicians hearing that they're going to force an insulin resistance solution to someone who may not be insulin resistant and they may overlook their, their gut health. So just something to be aware of because it's most common. We have to offset that with the, the population that you're working with and the more, uh, you know, progressive and invested in their health someone is, ostensibly the less insulin resistance 
or insulin resistant they may be. But I did want to ask you how you're defining that. Um, one of the you know things obviously can be used is a fasting blood glucose. Are you looking at that just being within range? Is there a nuance in terms of how you're looking at that? Are you juxtaposing that with hemoglobin A1C, even though that can be confounded by other variables like inflammation. So how would a clinician say, yes or no, generally speaking, I should be considering insulin resistance with this, in, uh, this individual in front of me? Absolutely. Um, so typically we are using HOMA IR. So, you know, you want to have your fasting blood sugar times your fasting insulin divided by 405.45, and that'll give you an idea. We'd like to see it around one. As it starts to drift up above 1.3, 1.4, get up to two and three, you know, that is very significant insulin resistance. Uh, so that's what we're using. But, you know, you bring up a good point for all of us increasing data set size, being able to look more and more carefully at what's actually going on. If there's a real suspicion, of course, an oral glucose tolerance test uh, with uh, insulin is the most sensitive. But for most people, you don't need that. Just looking at the HOMA IR, very helpful. And having computer-based algorithms that work with us as physicians to allow us to get these much larger data sets. We now have a an app that we've developed with a software company so that you can actually look at all these different things. You know, that, that is the future for all of us to be able to look at larger data sets, to get better looks at people, better insights into the critical factors that are driving, in this case, the cognitive decline, but of course, for others in other areas. And you're absolutely right that the, uh, that the gut health has been, again, one of the most common things and getting, uh, getting gut healing. So many of these people have leaky gut, uh, getting appropriate probiotics and prebiotics, all of these absolutely critical. And of course, optimizing microbiome. This has become such a huge field, the relationship between the gut microbiome and the brain and you know, Parkinson's in Alzheimer's. Um, this is a huge issue. Of course, in ALS as well, these published papers on all of these areas. And regarding the, the HOMA IR, I'm just looking up a few things because I've actually been a bit critical of this measure in the past, but mm. I'm, I'm certainly open-minded to that. I wasn't clear on how well it translated clinically, and it seemed like there may have been less data. Well, obviously, there's less data than using a fasting blood glucose. Doesn't mean that fasting blood glucose is better, but that was part of my rationale was it seemed like some of the nuances in how to look at HOMA IR were still being worked out. That being said, I haven't done a, a very deep dive on this. So that, that, if I'm correct here, is fasting insulin times fasting glucose, which is, I believe, what you said a moment ago? Yes, divided by 405.45. So, so the idea here is, you know, we do see a lot of people, you know, we'd, we'd like to see their fasting glucose in the 70 to 90 range. And, they, you know, you may have someone who's got a fasting glucose of 85, but now their fasting insulin is 30. Okay, they're working very, very hard to keep sure. their fasting glucose where it is. So they actually have a very high HOMA IR and they do have insulin resistance. Alternatively, as their insulin starts to fail, you know, may, their, their fasting insulin may be down at one or two, but now their fasting glucose may be up at 120, that sort of thing. So that's why I think it's helpful to take both of those. And as you said, also hemoglobin A1C to take that into account. So they all give you very much you know, complementary information. The other thing that we've seen a lot of, by the way, is with using continuous glucose monitoring, been such a helpful thing. We see not only people who are spiking, often from foods that they consider to be very, quote, healthy foods, but also what happens, they go to bed and they're dropping down into the 40s and 50s, and they didn't understand why they were waking up in the middle of the night. 
And it's not always obvious. It's not always that they're, you know, drenched in sweat or things like that. They're waking up not realizing they're having hypoglycemic episodes. Very bad for your brain, as you know. And now with CGM, they're able to say, aha, I need to smooth out my glucose curve. I need to lower the carbs in my diet. I need to increase the good fats in my diet, make sure my protein is, you know, mid-range, maybe one gram per kilogram, that sort of thing. And if I can smooth out the curve, I won't have those damaging hypoglycemic events in the middle of the night. Right, right. Yep. And that's certainly something that we've talked about in the podcast before. One of the things that can be helpful for that outside of just getting their their diet more dialed in and finding the best macronutrient balance for them, at least what I found is having some people have a snack when they wake up to help prevent or, or bring them out of that hypoglycemic mm-hmm. event. That's, I think, more of a sub- population recommendation because as people become healthier and healthier, they should be able to maintain that that fasting status throughout the night. So I, I want to be careful to say that's more of a while we're working on your metabolic health recommendation, not necessarily something that should be done in, in perpetuity. But would you have any concerns with, with employing that uh, method in more of the acute phase application? Yeah, no problem. No, I think that that's fine. I think the main thing is that we, you know, we want to do everything to change the ratio. People have a, you know, when they, when you have cognitive decline or risk for cognitive decline, you have a lot of synaptoclastic signaling, things pulling back on your synapses. And that includes all the things we've talked about and a much less synaptoblastic signaling, making and keeping synapses. So we want to do everything to optimize your chemistry. And it includes your gut health, of course, and your sinuses and your gut and your uh, microbiome, your oral microbiome, and all the things that we've been talking about. We want to change that ratio. And so, yes, we'd like to avoid these periods of hypoglycemia as well well as of hyperglycemia. Related question for for clinicians who are trying to incorporate more of this into their blood workup assessment, do LabCorp or Quest have a blood glucose with insulin that also gives you a pre-calculated home IR score or do you have to just do the math out? I mean, not that it's hard math, but you know, the easier sure. we can make it on a clinician where they have it in the report. The Absolutely. Better. And actually we have a, so we actually have, you can get the entire panel that we use. So if you look, for example, just at drbredison.com, you can actually get a cognoscopy or just look at mycognoscopy.com. So we recommend just like we all should get a colonoscopy when we turn 50, we should all have a cognoscopy at 45 or for 45 or older. And you want to look at this set of things. And that includes your home IR and it calculates it for you. So you can do it with that directly. Um, or you can you can do it through a panel. But you're right. I'm not aware that LabCorp or that Quest will calculate it directly for you. Gotcha. Okay. And regarding diet, are you finding that everyone needs to be on a lower carb diet? Or do you find that try to pose this question as, as precisely as I can. Some people may do better on a moderate or higher carbohydrate diet, but we have to look at their, at least what I've been doing is looking at their body composition and their energy levels. And, and some people ironically eat more carbs, less fat, and they actually feel better and they seem to have body composition improvements. That does seem to be more of a minority than the majority, but I, I just try to always acknowledge 
a spectrum of, of dietary macronutrient consumption if or when it does exist so that people don't feel like they're shoehorned into a certain recommendation. Now, that may not be the case from a cognitive perspective, but I'm just wondering what you see there. It's a great point. And you know, that's where it's so helpful to look to see with each person what works best. And, and what we find is people who are willing to you know, look and see how they are doing, make changes, uh, do the best. What we're trying to do, you know, we're again coming from the test tube. So we're looking at what are the molecular pathways? What is the neurochemistry that drives best cognition? In general, as you uh, alluded to, uh, in general, the people who do best and the, the thing that's been published the most for good cognition is what we call KetoFlex 12.3. So you're getting people into mild ketosis, typically between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. If you like to use a breathalyzer, there's a nice one from Biosense that you want to get above seven on the ACEs score, which is acetone. Um, and I don't work for Biosense or anything, but the, we're just looking for you know, what works best. We're agnostic. Uh, so the, you, know, you want to get into ketosis. You want to have uh, some degree. You can either be a vegetarian if you want, fine, or you can be an omnivore, fine. Um, if you're going to do that, then you want to have you know, fish, wild-caught fish. You want to have some, if you're going to eat beef, fine, why, you know, Grass-fed beef, pastured chicken, pastured eggs, as you know, one of the most common deficiencies in the United States is choline deficiency. We should all be getting about 550 milligrams of choline per day. It is the precursor for acetylcholine, the most important neurotransmitter in Alzheimer's disease. It's the one that's critical for making memory. So being deficient in choline is not a good thing. We want to optimize that. Uh, and then it is KetoFlex 12.3 because you want to have a minimum fasting period, 12 hours. If you're APOE4 positive, you want to go up to 14 to 16 hours between when you finish dinner, when you start breakfast, brunch, or lunch, and then a three-hour fast between finishing dinner and going to bed as a minimum because you don't want to have your insulin spiking while you're going to sleep. So that's generally the thing that works best for cognition. And it does seem to be critical to get the ketone level up there because the ones who who don't get there don't do as well in general. And the ones who get good ketone levels do better. So we recommended people at the beginning, just take some exogenous ketones at the beginning. It's not a problem for the first couple of months. Slowly, we'll help to get you into endogenous ketosis, which tends to work best. Now, as you indicated, a minority of people actually will do better on complex carbs. You know, that's fine. That's the, you know, the kid of a, a group that uh, Stephen Gundry talks about. They do very well. So uh, as you said, for some body types and for some personalities, that may be better. But in general, we want a high good fats, mildly ketogenic, plant-rich diet with appropriate fasting and appropriate fiber. Fiber is a huge part of this as well for its detox, for its glycemic effect, for its lipid effect, all these things, for its microbiome effect, all these things it can be helpful. Mm. Shifting gears just, just for a moment here, looking at the other components of, of the model, the atrophic and the vascular seem like they would have a lot of overlap in terms of you know, exercising, fasting, maybe sauna therapy. Can you tell people a little bit more about these, what they might want to be on the lookout for and, and certain things they may want to put in a practice to help mitigate any, any imbalances they have there? 
Absolutely. And of course, many people feel as they get a little older, they're saying, you know, well, I'm kind of expecting it. I'm, I'm a little older now. I'm not expecting to do as well as before. And, you know, this is something where functional medicine, I think, has addressed it so well. You know, it may be that you're you know, that your homocysteine is, quote, normal, but it may not be optimal. And unfortunately, within normal limits simply means within two standard deviations of the norm. It has absolutely nothing to do with best physiology. So we should all be aware that optimizing our physiology is going to take getting these things into the right range. And it's all the various hormones we talked about, and it's nerve growth factor and brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And the good news is, in our arsenal now, we have the ability to alter all of these things. And so we've been told over the years, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about cognitive decline. And, and it turns out, thankfully, nothing could be further from the truth. There is a tremendous amount that you can do about it. And absolutely, you want to optimize these various things. And as you indicated earlier, you know, as you get healthier, these things tend to get better. And a good example, one woman who had a very low fasting insulin and a high fasting glucose, as she started to improve things, not only did her glucose come down, but her fasting insulin came into the normal range, moved up. She was just not able to generate the insulin previously. So all these things tend to improve. So that's type two. That is the atrophic type. Type four is a little different in that it is, a, it is energetics. You need to get to the far reaches of your brain. And surprisingly, many of us are not doing that effectively. That's one of the reasons that sedentary lifestyle is so bad for your brain. And so you have to have this critical triad. You have to get the blood flow itself. And again, with some atherosclerosis, that's going to interfere with that. You have to get the oxygenation there. And we find so many people where the doctor just didn't check, people weren't aware, and they're dropping their oxygenation at night when they are sleeping. And so they're coming down from 96 to 98% where they should be down into the 80s. And even we've seen people into the low 70s, even people who didn't realize that they had so whether they didn't know they had sleep apnea and may not even have diagnosed sleep apnea, but they may have upper airway resistance syndrome or other reasons to drop their nocturnal oxygenation. Of course, now with all the things we can, we can check our own nocturnal oxygenation very easily. You can buy an oximeter or you can get a number of these yeah, devices. I'm sorry. Let, let, let's let's go in, into a little more yeah. detail there because I would actually be really curious to hear what you're finding because this is you know kind of a, a specialized field all in of itself, but yeah. how can people get a, a good read on their sleep quality and perhaps sleep quality needs to be assessed and also oxygenation at nighttime needs to be separately assessed. Um, you know, of course, a sleep study is sometimes just recommended as if it's an easy thing, but then in application, there are some major hurdles with some people's insurance not covering that. Right. Right. Uh, many people don't want to go through the labor of that. Um, a aura ring seems like a decent device to get some yeah. preliminary data. I know there's the HST, the home sleep test. Um, but yeah, what do you think is, is a good kind of practical, I'm a patient or a clinician, I want to get a preliminary assessment of quality and or oxygenation at nighttime. How does one assess that? Yeah, great point. So usually you're right. For a sleep study, someone will want to know, well, do you have symptoms to suggest that you have sleep apnea? So that that's one way to go. 
But if you don't have that, okay, as you mentioned, there's the aura ring. There's also something called better, B-E-D-D-R, another way to look at this. The new Fitbits also have this. The new Apple Watch that just came out uh, looks at oxygen saturation. So everybody is realizing now oxygen saturation is important. And I think, you know, some of this has come from COVID-19. You can check your, you know, during the day, if you want, you can check your uh, SPO2, you know, your, your oxygenation status uh, on your iPhone. Uh, there's a simple app to do that. Uh, so uh, lots of ways to do it, but you do want to know it's a critical piece, getting the oxygenation. And then the third part of that triad is getting the ketones. You have to have something to burn. You got to, you know, it's just like if you've got an outpost in Alaska, you know, you got to get to the outpost. You got to bring the right things to the outpost and you've got to, they've got to be able to use the things that you brought to the outpost. And this is absolutely a critical region for Alzheimer's, a very common contributor to cognitive decline, and also to people who have, quote, normal cognition, but could actually do a little better with optimizing those parameters. Gotcha. And I'll apologize for the audience. There's construction going on by my office. So uh, you may hear some background noise I'm trying to mitigate, but (laughs) somewhat failing to fully be able to close this out since it's literally right outside my window. What is the accuracy of something like a a Fitbit for oxygenation. It it would seem to me that we'd need a more complicated measure, although I'm happy to be proven wrong on that, but are those devices fairly accurate in that measure? Yeah. And these things, of course, if you want the most accuracy, you're going to want to have a formal sleep study. No question. These things are all approximations, but they do get you in the right range. And in fact, you know, since we're looking for 96 to 98%, if you're sitting down at 75 or, you know, 82 or something like that, very likely that there's a problem. And of course, they also give you a first order approximation so that you can then follow up and say, okay, I now realize that this is an issue. I need to look into it further. Gotcha. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a arduous, expensive, uncomfortable process to at least get a preliminary assessment. Exactly. And I think more and more, as you know, the quantified self is becoming so important and so helpful. And just kind of to know where we all stand. You know, we can now, we can measure our ketones and we can measure our glucose and we can find out about our microbiome and we can find out about our genome. And we, I mean, it's just amazing what can be done that wasn't available 10 years ago. And, you know, we can look at our oxygenation. We can look at, you know, the number of steps we're taking and our blood pressures and our heart rate variability, all these things so that we can really do a much better job of adjusting and optimizing our physiology. And I think this is a a huge field going forward. Yep. I I think it's um, certainly something with the aura ring. I've shared my story on the podcast where I was probably, um, uh, you know, (laughs) a, a bit in denial that going to bed before 11 had as measurable of an impact on sleep quality as it, as it did. But the aura ring really exposed that. And um, I was, you know, really kind of coaxed into being better about getting to bed at an at a earlier time. That leads to a, a question I wanted to ask you. I'm not sure if you are, are looking at enough aura data to have an opinion here, but is there a certain sleep score, you know, you should be above this range? And if you're not, that's cause for concern? Because that seems a little bit more difficult to adjudicate. It does seem when looking at the app, you want to be at least at 80 or above that. That's when you kind of get into the blue sky uh, background and at least the app is suggesting this is where you want to be. And I look at that as beneficial to know on the one hand, on the other, I don't want to set a goal for people that may be extremely hard for most people to hit and then create angst. 
So what are your thoughts there in terms of what people should be looking for to, to uh, have their sleep score be? It's a great point. So this is exactly why we created the Recode app that it takes all these data. So we'll be able to see over time who's doing the best with their cognition, who's improving, who's declining, who's stable, et cetera. We don't yet have, I mean, we have data on, you know, things like glucose and things like uh, toxins and things like that. We don't yet know on an aura ring. There just hasn't been enough uh, use of the data. There hasn't been enough input to know what's going to be critical for cognition. So I think you bring up a really good point. We don't have the data yet. This is why, you know, this is over time, we should know this exact question. Right. Well, I'll be very curious to to see where the, the consensus forms for that. But you know, that being said, I think we have some rough approximations that people can look to. And the one thing I would offer people is is just don't be fanatical about any one measure. Look at these things as biofeedback to help you guide your decision making, but don't get overly angst if, you know, you can never get above 85, you know, because we want to use these things for benefit and for informing our practices, but not to cause stress or worry or what have you. Great. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Ruscio. In case you need help, I wanted to quickly make you aware of what resources are available to you. If you go to drruscio.com slash resources, you will see a few links you can click through for more. Firstly, there is the clinic, which I'm immensely proud of the fact that we deliver cost-effective, simple, but highly efficacious functional medicine. There's also my book, Healthy Good, Healthy You, which has been proven to allow those who've been unable to improve their health, even after seeing numerous doctors, to be able to help them finally feel better. There's also our store, where there's a number of products like our Elemental Heal line, our probiotic line, and other gut-supportive and health-supportive supplements. Health coaching. We now offer health coaching. So if you've read the book or listened to a podcast like this one or are reading about a product and you need some help with how or when to use or how to integrate with diet, we now offer health coaching to help you along your way. And then finally, if you're a clinician, there is our clinician's newsletter, The Future of Functional Medicine Review, which I'm very proud to say we've now had doctors who've read that newsletter find challenging cases in their practices apply what we teach in the newsletter and be able to help these patients who were otherwise considered challenging cases. Everything for these resources can be accessed through drrusha.com slash resources. Alrighty, back to the show. One, uh, one, one kind of final topic I want to have, I mean, there, there's many more questions I could ask because there's a lot here to unpack. And I think this model is just fantastic, but head trauma is something that we have talked about on the podcast a few times. And one of the things there does seem to be a subset of with chronic digestive ailment patients is a history of head trauma. Uh, there's also a history of emotional trauma, a little bit different, but just to quickly acknowledge this for the audience, emotional trauma may really lend itself well to something like limbic retraining therapy, but there's also head trauma. And we discussed this with Titus Chu, who wrote the book Brain Save and has a really good kind of home-based neurological rehab plan for those who have had head trauma. And for some people, that can really be the difference between success and failure. We also have to be careful because some circles in functional medicine proclaim that everyone with IBS has a 
vagal nerve problem and has people doing all these exercises that don't really have any historical evidence to support that there is a problem there. So we want to be careful not to force a a brain-based problem onto a non-brain-based population. But again, for those, especially with a history of head trauma, this really tends to land for some people. Uh, So, you know, any, any kind of pearls, I guess, regarding head trauma? Absolutely. So, you know, there was a classic paper years ago by Dr. Gareth Roberts, and he looked at people who had very significant head trauma and who ended up dying of their head trauma within a week or two. And they had massively increased amyloid. The very thing that we associate with Alzheimer's was actually brought out by head trauma, which had not been realized before. So when you have head trauma, part of this response that you have is the production of the very thing that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. Now, for most people, they end up clearing that over time, but it tells you why these people are at increased risk for Alzheimer's. And so if you do have a history of head trauma, everybody, you know, everyone who's had traffic accidents, who's had some head trauma, everyone who's played football, and everyone who's had any sort of significant repeated, even mild head injury, should be on a prevention protocol. We developed one that's called Precode for prevention of cognitive decline um, that you can get on, but there are others. You want to get on things that are, that are absolutely will optimize the ability to reestablish these connections because there is a tremendous amount you can do about it. Again, just as we've been told, there's nothing you can do about Alzheimer's, cognitive decline associated with head trauma, whether it turns out to be Alzheimer's or not, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. And the earlier, the better. You want to increase your trophic factor support. So actually, things like whole coffee fruit extract, which increases BDNF, exercise increases BDNF. Things like uh, Alcar, acetyl-L-carnitine, which increases nerve growth factor, making sure that your hormones are optimized, making sure that your vitamin D is optimized. Obviously, this has come out in COVID-19. So important to have optimal vitamin D, optimal zinc. Uh, So this is the same thing for head trauma. Head trauma has a lot like the type 2, like the atrophic, because you're not supporting those synapses, in this case, of course, because of physical damage to them instead of chemical damage. Now, with the the pre-code plan, would you say and I'm asking this question mainly for the providers. Let's say you are a provider and you're working on many of the things that as I'm quickly pulling up the pre-code plan are listed in the plan. Kind of many of these foundational health applications, nutrition, inflammation, blood sugar regulation. Would, would the pre-code plan be a good referral or would there be a lot of perhaps redundancy and should a clinician be looking for, if they're looking to complement their therapeutics with something that's kind of traumatic brain injury or, or I, should, I should say head trauma specific, would you recommend someone finding a neurologist or a chiropractic neurologist or, or you know, someone who would hone in and focus on that specifically or would there not be much redundancy with, with the pre-code? Yeah, good plan? point. So pre-code is specifically for people who are asymptomatic. So this is truly a prevention mm. and you can get it directly. Gotcha. You don't even need to go to your doctor. You can get it directly, myprecode.com. You'll get a you know, 60 plus page report that's very much like Boston Heart would be for heart. This is the analogy for now. Anyone, this will tell you 
what are your major risk factors for cognitive decline? Here's how to address them. Uh, so that's critical for anyone who's, who's got a you know, family history, children of Alzheimer's, people with a family history of dementia, uh, people 45 and over, uh, anyone who's concerned about cognitive decline because it's such a common problem. Uh, about 45 million of the currently living Americans will die of Alzheimer's if we don't do something about it. So prevention is step one. For those who truly have symptoms and who have significant head trauma, then actually recode is much better. So that's reversal of cognitive decline. Um, and you can get that, as I mentioned, mycognoscopy.com. And that does go into much more detail. Uh, yes, it does look at some of these critical things uh, like gut health and like uh, glucose. So if you've done all of these things, uh, then you may want to look at, you know, what, what do I want to do in addition? But Recode will tell you what are the things that are most likely to cause your decline in the future. Because, of course, if you've had head trauma, you, it, these others are still contributors. If you've got head trauma, but you're also exposed to specific toxins you're unaware of, or you're actually dropping your oxygenation at night that you're unaware of, things like that, these are things that can be nipped in the bud, that can be optimized to give you a better outcome for head trauma-related cognitive decline. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, well Dale, this has been a, a really insightful call. Again, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're you're now identifying these subtypes because I think, you know, as, as the field progresses, we need to be more and more efficient with our care. And this seems like a great kind of heuristic to help clinicians parse all the components of the model. So just, you know, fantastically well done. Is there anything you want to leave people with? And please mention again, uh, any websites or books that you would like people to uh, look at if they're looking for more information. Absolutely. I think the, you know, the key here is we can all work together to reduce the the global burden of dementia. You know, let's make Alzheimer's a rare disease. It can be uh, with what we know now. And you can find more information either in the book that just came out, which is called The End of Alzheimer's Program. The first book was The End of Alzheimer's. It's now available in 32 languages. The new one, basically, people had asked for more details. What websites, what workarounds, you know, where do I go? What do I get, et cetera. Uh, so we tried to put all of that into the second book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. Uh, just came out from uh, Random House a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then you can go to mycognoscopy.com if you're interested in prevention, myprecode.com, M-Y-P-R-E-C-O-D-E.com to get that, uh, which is a less extensive program and actually does a great job with, uh, with prevention without having to do a ton of different things, just as you indicated earlier. So thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to Dr. Ruscio Radio today. Check us out on iTunes and leave a review. Visit drruscio.com to ask a question for an upcoming podcast, post comments for today's show, and sign up to receive weekly updates. That's drruscio.com.